They wanted to prove that they had the same metal as the people who settled the frontier. And they actually sought out hardship in order to prove that they had what dad had or grandpa. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 in Crosscut. I'm Stephen Haig. And I'm Knute Berger. And in case you wondered, Mossback's Northwest is a fascinating look at the history of the most interesting place on Earth. And today we're going to talk about Nature Man or Nature Men. If you haven't seen the video, why don't you stop for a moment right now, go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com, check out the video, and then we'll see you right back here. He looks like someone you might have known in college, or the guy dancing near the stage at Woodstock or Burning Man. In many ways, he was the prototypical hippie. But this photograph wasn't taken in the 1960s or 70s, or even the 90s or 2000s. It was taken in 1908. Meet Nature Man. Canute. I've noticed that on your desk for the past couple of years is a photograph, a black and white photograph. It looks archival, but it's a photograph of a man standing in kind of a tropical milieu, but he looks contemporary, but very historical at the same time. But the odd thing about him is he's hardly wearing any clothes. He's wearing sort of a mesh cropped top, uh, what looks like a handmade denim bag slung around his shoulders, and a loincloth or a short sort of patchwork quilt uh, as a skirt of some kind. And his name is Ernest Darling. Who is Ernest Darling? <laughs> well, yes, the man in the photo, you know, you, you've got it right. I mean, he looks like somebody I went to the Evergreen State College with in 1972. I mean, he's he's a hippie. He, uh, you didn't mention he's got a beard, long hair, he's barefoot. I mean, he's somebody living the sort of full hippie ideal. But this picture was taken long before there were hippies. This picture was taken at the turn of the century. Ernest Darling uh, has a kind of biography that's like a lot of contemporary kind of alternative college students. He grew up in Oregon, Portland. His father was a prominent doctor, uh, smart kid. <clears throat> he got sent to Stanford uh, for college, went down to California, and he just had a terrible time with his health. Um, and he was kind of wasting away. He, um, you know, wasn't eating. And so he decided to prescribe for himself a, a primitive diet, sort of a, a vegetarian, but, but kind of a, I would say, hunter-gatherer, just a gatherer diet, you know, where he would go off into the woods and he'd pick fruit or uh, eat nuts and, and that kind of thing. And he found that it, it really helped his health. He also found that shedding his clothes... <laughs> 
seemed to make a huge difference. So he wore as little as possible. And of course, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, uh, you know, a man walking around without a shirt on or with shorts, or in this case, he often wore a loincloth. Um, this was considered really offensive, radical stuff, the kind of stuff that would get you arrested if you were walking down a city street like this. He became kind of a wanderer in California and uh, dropped out of school. Um, you know, his his dad's medicine couldn't help him, and so he he was on this sort of self-healing journey. And San Francisco, even at that time, was full of a lot of very unusual people. I mean, it has a long history of being kind of a place where alternative types uh, end up and flourish. And uh, one day, uh, Ernest Darling was walking in the hills around uh, Oakland and ran into um, uh, Jack London. The author. The author. And the adventurer. Right. Author, adventurer. Uh, you know, wrote Call of the Wild. And at that time, really one of America's most famous writers. And uh, at first, London just thought, well, this guy's kind of a nut, you know, but harmless. And it turned out that um, Darling started to get articles written about him, mainly because he was just an odd character. He made good copy and, you know, he began to kind of promote, although he wasn't looking for followers, he was kind of a loner, but he began to promote this, who, we don't need clothes, we don't need, um, you know, processed foods, we should live off the land. So he's a back-to-the-earth proto-hippie. Exactly. It's, it's the same kind of ideology that people in the 60s, uh, you know, were talking about. He looks like people from the 60s. I mean, that the photograph that I have, I said that he looks like somebody he went to Evergreen with. He could have been at Woodstock. He could have been in uh, the Summer of Love in uh, the, you know, the Fillmore. Um, <clears throat> and I, I keep it around partly because he just looks so familiar. And it just blows me away that, uh, you know, how long ago this guy was tromping around. How did you run into Ernest Darling in your research? You know, I'm trying to remember, but I think it was I came across a reference to Jack London meeting this guy. And they met him. London not only knew him from the Bay Area, but when London and his wife, they, you know, built a boat and went on a trip to the South Pacific. And some years before, Darling had relocated <laughs> from San Francisco to Tahiti. London gets into Tahiti and coming out to greet him in a canoe, paddling a canoe with a red socialist flag on it, was Ernest Darling. And they ended up spending a bunch of time together. Darling had uh, created a little sort of uh, farm in the woods, uh, in the jungle there. Locals uh, tolerated him. His lack of clothes wasn't a problem. His lack of clothes was a problem in other places. He tried Hawaii before he got to Tahiti, and they ran him out because he was selling people postcards of his semi-nude body as a way of kind of promoting this lifestyle. Oh, I bet that went over well. No, it did, yeah, it ran over. Now, they, they dubbed him a vagrant. They arrested him, and then they told him, well, we, we're going to put you in jail or you can leave the island. And a number of people visiting Tahiti wrote about him and interviewed him. He wasn't really a, a big celebrity, but he was, uh, you know, sort of a 
D-list <laughs> uh, piece of copy. Whatever happened to Ernest Darling then? Well, um, we weren't able. I was able to cover all this uh, in the in the video, but um, Darling uh, did a certain amount of island hopping. He um, came back to California, and uh, in fact, I, I actually found somewhere a copy of Darling's passport photo from uh, the you know teens, um, and he he wanted to find a wife. And he was planning, uh, doing it, finding a woman, doing extensive travel. Uh, that never seemed to work out. And um, he ended going back to the South Pacific. And, the th you know, the thing that caught up with him was, was the, the influenza pandemic. The Spanish flu. Yes, so-called Spanish flu. Um, Darling was a victim of the Spanish flu um, and, uh, you know, died in what, 19, 1918, early 1919. Interesting. So much for natural living, so much so much for going back to the earth. Well, you know, it's interesting because so many people have the kinds of physical issues that Ernest Darling had where traditional medicine just doesn't work for them. But if they find the right regimen of exercise and the outdoors, it was his promotion of nudity. Now, the definition of nudity back then was a little different than now. I mean, men didn't really wear shorts and, uh, you know, let alone go around in cropped mesh tops <laughs> or, uh, you know, loincloths. And, uh, you know, this was all considered very, very shocking at the time. But, you know, he did find a way of living that... Um, you know, was sustainable for him for many years. But yeah, he, he couldn't beat the big bug. Was this a part of, at the turn of the century, was there a back to the nature movement at all? Did he, it, did he inspire a following? Was there any kind of following to this? Yeah, so at the turn of the century is when you find... In America, certainly, uh, and, and, you know, you could say Anglo-America in particular, um, you find that there was this, what people describe as a crisis in white manhood. Oh, and, dear. Oh, dear, yes. And, of course, this is a, it's, it's sort of a form that's rooted in a kind of white supremacism. But also, you know, the idea that um, the Anglo-Saxon race is superior, and uh, and they, you know, the the people who settled the frontier had you know, all these uh, physical skills and prowess, and they were tough and they were strong. Well, as urbanization transformed America and and the frontier, you get this kind of sense that well, cities are producing white men who aren't macho enough, who don't have the skills of the wood woodsmen. You know, they've lost, you know, this sort of basic pride. In, and, you know, Teddy Roosevelt is like the exemplar of this movement with, you know, encouraging people to live a vigorous life to, you know, he's a hunter, um, goes big game hunting. He's a boxer. And, you know, he kind of transformed himself from being a 98-pound weakling to being, uh, you know, walk softly and carry a big stick president. It sounds like uh, mechanization and industrialization has made 
men soft, and now they have to go out and prove their manhood. Sort of an early Ernest Hemingway sort of deal. Yeah, there definitely is that element of of um, macho, and but but it also translated into the kind of curriculum that boys' schools adopted, which had a lot to do with physical fitness. Um, the Boy Scouts come into existence, both in Britain and the United States at this time. Um, and one of the things is that these things are very appropriative of indigenous culture. And there's almost a line in the sand. And, and so popular books like Tarzan, you know, can a, can a white Englishman go into the jungle and outperform everybody else? You know, it, it's the sense that you should be able to do everything a, a modern man does and everything your ancestors could do. And so this gets into this kind of um, cringy territory about adopting native woodcraft and tracking and hunting and all these kinds of things that are traditional. So were there other people who were promoting a back-to-the-nature uh, living with natural skills, lifestyle, or movement? Well, that was, uh, that was I think, a thread in this crisis of white manhood, so-called movement. But, but, but I, I kind of place it in sort of social Darwinism. And it, as, as the theory of evolution is accepted, there's sort of the belief that if, if you know that the famous picture of the, of the you know, there's Cro-Magnon man, there's Neanderthal man, you know, and eventually there's modern man. And of course, this infused the anthropology of that time. There were primitive people, people that were on the evolutionary scale that were inferior to white people in particular. And but I think there was also this notion that if you were a, a, a superior white man, and this is where I think some of the white supremacy comes in, that you should be able to do all the things that those, those beings that preceded you, that, that primitive so-called people, you should be able to do all those things plus all the modern stuff. It's almost like a, a different way of, of envisioning a, a Renaissance man. You know, you should you should be able to go out and, you know, kill a lion with your bare hands uh, as well as, you know, navigate New York's social circles. But wait, Darling wasn't the only nature man in the news at that time. There was another, not an imitator, but a man who went into the woods around the time Darling was gamboling in Tahiti. He wasn't doing it for his health, but to prove the superiority of the modern white man. And unlike Darling, Joseph Knowles became a major national sensation. What did he do? What did Joseph Knowles do? He was an artist in New England, and uh, he made a claim that he could go into the Maine woods for 60 days without any food, without a weapon, he could, without basically any clothes, just wearing, uh, you know, a, a loincloth or some animal skins. And he would go out there and he would survive. And he would, you know, make whatever he needed. He'd hunt whatever he needed. And 
this was sponsored by a Boston newspaper. And, of course, uh, reporters would go and he would he would write um, a, a, a accounts of what he was doing and have them passed along to civilization so they could get occasional reports. And this became like a huge newspaper circulation uh, drive. And when he came out of the woods after 60 days and he was still alive and, you know, healthy and had stories about how he had survived, when he visited Boston, there were literally hundreds of thousands of people packing the streets to see this guy and what he had accomplished. He was like a suddenly a superstar. So I understand he entered the forest basically wearing a white cotton jock strap. How did he emerge from the forest? Yes, well, he, he was wearing a bearskin for one thing. And, um, you know, he claimed that he had been able to, you know, hunt for his food. He'd made a, a bow or spear, you know, he'd made these weapons and... and um, he made a lot of claims about his ability to uh, survive in the woods, although it, I mean, 60 days doesn't seem like that long. It's, but this is like reality TV of, you know, 1914 or something. You know, it's a survivor. Exactly, it's survivor, and and you're you're getting the the accounts as they come out in the newspaper. You're getting the big uh, reveal at the end where he comes and tells you, uh, you know, how he was successful. In Knowles's case. Uh, he wrote a book. He appeared in a couple of silent movies. Um, uh, he went on a vaudeville tour where he was giving a spe- you know talks about his thing. So I'm curious, how did he post his dispatches? Did he go into the woods with a notebook? Uh, what? No, he'd write with you know charcoal on bark or something like that. You know to to um, get you know messages out and. This was, um, but there were people who were very skeptical about his success. He was accused of cheating. It was said that he actually had holed up in a cabin in the woods, that, you know, he was drinking beer, that he, somebody claimed, that they claimed that they inspected the bear skin and found that it had a bullet hole in it. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of, um, you know, shade thrown on Joel Knowles's accomplishment, if you want to call it that, and his celebrity and the whole basis for his celebrity. So he decided to do, and this is kind of where the Northwest comes back into the story. So you have Ernest Darling coming from Oregon. Well, Joe Knowles said he got a San Francisco newspaper to underwrite uh, an adventure into the Siskiyou Mountains where he would repeat the uh, experience from the Maine woods. The difference was that he had a bunch of uh, anthropologists and other uh, scientists who camped at a base camp nearby, and uh, Knowles was, um, they would come and pick up these messages that Knowles would leave, uh, you know, in, on bark in various places. And then they would uh, turn to the media and say, oh, well, Joe Knowles has caught a fish today, you know, or whatever it was. And um, 
So it was essentially a repeat of the main thing. And, and his goal was to prove that he wasn't a liar, you know, that that. So he got extensive coverage in the San Francisco newspapers and um, he got the sort of sheen of respectability from anthropologists like T.T. Waterman, who was then at Berkeley, who'd been studying uh, a, a, a an indigenous person called Ishi, who is uh, reputed to be one of the last of a particular tribe of California Indians and was kind of a sensation at this time. Waterman also ca later came to Seattle and had was was here for a while. But it had this sheen of sort of respectability on it. But, um, you know, he came out, you know, dressed in skins. And, uh, and of course, people claimed that, well, you know, it wasn't, he wasn't really that far away in the wilderness. There had been, there were mining camps nearby. And there were a lot of uh, questions thrown. But he, he generated a tremendous amount of publicity in places, Grant, Grants Pass, Oregon, and Portland. You know, people turned out. He was in parades. And, um, yeah, he was a reality TV star before TV in a big way. Was he able to parlay this into a, a fortune? You know, he, he made good money, I think, for a time. But... Um, you know, he I don't think he ever really got rich, um, despite the book, despite, you know, appearances on vaudeville. So he kept coming up with different proposals. Uh, he claimed he was going to go back to the woods, but this time with a woman. Uh, he called her Dawn Woman. And this kind of got in the papers and there were speculations about who Dawn Woman was going to be. And uh, that fell through. But I think he was thinking, hey, this will be a movie. Other people said, well, this is, um, you know, this is too risque. You know, man and woman going in the woods together, unmarried, strangers, Adam and Eve thing. You know, no. So uh, that didn't pan out. And there was a young woman from back east who came out to California to say, I'll be the woman that goes in with you, but I'm going to prove to you that women are as good as men. You know, she was a feminist pro, you know, and she she hated this sort of idea because Knowles was sort of turning it into a crisis of white womanhood. <laughs> he was sort of saying, well, you know, I've proved that the man can do it, but, you know, women are even softer and they're wearing corsets and, you know, can they survive in the wild. And um, so I think. And then somewhere along the line, he also got married. He got married in Tacoma at the Pantages Theater during a vaudeville uh, tour. And uh, I have the feeling that his his wife probably put her foot down on the Don Woman <laughs> deal. He ended up, interestingly, um, when he came out of the woods in the Siskiyous, World War I had broken out, and nobody cared about the stunt anymore. It was like this huge reality TV thing ran into reality, which was World War I. The newspapers put any item about him on the, you know, deep, buried it deep. And so that really didn't, you know, didn't go anywhere. He ended up living in southwest Washington in basically a driftwood cottage and making art, he went back to being an artist. Um, 
I did find that he had proposed uh, another adventure going into the Olympics. But, you know, I found one article about it and then it just disappeared. And he ended up dying in the early 1940s. Um, he did some public artwork at um, um, some public buildings in southwest Washington. And, and you can find some of his art online for sale. <laughs> the quiet life of an artist is kind of where he ended up. I'm curious if there was ever a, a, a published reaction from, you know, an indigenous point of view about how ridiculous the white man uh, being able to survive in uh, nature. Well, it's I didn't see anything like that. I mean, granted that indigenous voices were not published, probably. But. Yeah, and but. Fortunately, some of the comments that were made by his supporters, um, you know, sort of re reveal the kind of ridiculousness of what was going on, especially as they tried to couch it as some sort of experiment. Um, the T.T. Waterman from the University of California um, said, <clears throat> quote, when Knowles walks into the woods alone and unarmed to live there for a month or more, he places himself where the first naked man walked the earth and it will be of interest to see what kind of implements he uses and in what order he invents them. You know, with, <laughs> I mean, there are people who've been doing this for millennia who who live live here, who could answer any questions if they chose to. Um, and this idea that you could only find this out by sending a white man to replicate what happened—it's—it's it's just so ridiculous on its face. I saw a quote saying uh, from a story about Noel saying, one scientist said his stunt would have scientific value. We will be interested to know how the lack of salt will affect Knowles. <laughs> That's interesting. I mean, this is right in the middle of this period in anthropology where, you know, people are making vast judgments based on skull shape. And uh, th these pre-existing notions, as I said, the sort of Darwinian thing of evolution being this specific thing which reflects itself through different races of people. And, um, and that all of these things can be, become known while pursuing <laughs> tracks of thinking that aren't, we know now are not uh, relevant. This takes place in a period of American history where stunts of all kinds became sort of a rave. Uh, and I don't know if it's the, the, the power of the serialization in newspapers, but w weren't people performing all sorts of stunts? Yeah, newspapers were building circulation by sending people around the world in a balloon or... Uh, you know, going over kind. Niagara Falls in a barrel. <clears throat> yes, exactly. Sitting on and, a flagpole for days. Yes, yes, and and it you know, this was the height of the era of those newspapers, mass circulation, 
um, newspapers. There was no television. There was no radio. There, there wasn't anything competing with the printed word, and the printed word was very profitable. And uh, these these um, stunts and races and, uh, you know, reality, as you were saying, you know, reality TV-like uh, events um, yeah, we're super popular. And then, you know, you get into the era where you, you have film finally. And so you've got newsreels, you've got, uh, silent movies, you've got, um, you know, a host of, uh, vaudeville is still strong. So people are going out on these speaking tours, speaking to tens of thousands of people, uh, traveling all over the country, telling their stories. So, the lecture circuit is very strong. And so this combination, I think, is something that Knowles really got swept up in, you know. But, you know, like the old Andy Warhol thing, he was famous for 15 minutes. He got his 15 minutes and then, you know, lived in a beach cottage, you know, painting pictures after that. Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Seth Halloran, and the executive producer is Mark Baumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its seventh season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through May. You can subscribe to the Mossback Podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We'd love to know what you think of the show. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Stephen Haig. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>